Chapter 2 of the Texan Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mr. Duck. The Texan Star by Joseph A. Outscheller. Chapter 2. The optimism of Mr. Austin endured the next morning, but Ned was gloomy. Since it was his habit to be silent, the man did not notice it at first. The breakfast was good, with tortillas, frijoles, and other Mexican dishes and coffee, but the boy had no appetite. He merely picked at his food, made a faint effort or two to drink his coffee, and finally put the cup back, almost full, in the saucer. Then Mr. Austin began to observe. "'Are you ill, Ned?' he asked. "'Is this imprisonment beginning to tell upon you? I thought that you were standing it well. Can't you eat?' "'I don't believe I'm hungry,' replied the boy. "'But there is nothing else the matter with me. I'll be all right, Uncle Steve. Don't you bother about me.' He ate a little breakfast, about one half the usual amount, and then, asking to be excused, went to the window, where he again stared out at the tiled roofs, the green foliage in the Valley of Mexico, and the ranges and peaks beyond. He was taking his resolution, and he was carrying it out, but it was hard, very hard. He foresaw that he would have to strengthen his will many, many times. Mr. Austin took no further worry on Ned's account, thinking that he would be all right again in a day or two. But at the dinner which was brought to them in the middle of the day, Ned showed a marked failure of appetite, and Mr. Austin felt real concern. The boy, however, was sure that he would be all right before the day was over. "'It must be a lack of fresh air and exercise,' said Mr. Austin. "'You can really take exercise in here, Ned. Besides, you said that you were going to escape. If you fall ill, you will have no chance at all.' He spoke half in jest, but Ned took him seriously. "'I'm not ill, Uncle Steve,' he said. "'I really feel very well, but I've lost my appetite. "'Maybe I'm getting tired of these Mexican dishes.' "'Take exercise! Take exercise!' said Mr. Austin with emphasis. "'I think I will,' said Ned. "'Physical exercise, after all, fitted in with his ideas, "'and that afternoon he worked hard at all the gymnastic feats "'possible within the three rooms to which they were confined. "'Dizavala came in and expressed his astonishment at the athletic feats, "'which Ned continued with unabated zeal despite his presence.' Why do you do these things, he asked in wonder, to keep myself strong and healthy. I ought to have begun them sooner. This Mexican air is depressing, and I find that I am losing my appetite. Dizavala's eyes opened wide while Ned deftly turned a handspring. Then the young American sat down panting. His face flushed as with as healthy a color as anyone could find anywhere. You'll have an appetite tonight, said Mr. Austin. But to his great amazement, Ned again played with his food, eating only half the usual amount. You're surely ill, said Mr. Austin. I've no doubt that Zavala will allow us to have a physician, and I shall ask him for one. Don't do it, Uncle Steve, begged Neb. There's nothing at all the matter with me, and anyhow I wouldn't want a Mexican doctor fussing over me. I've probably been eating too much. Mr. Austin was forced to accede. The boy certainly did not look ill, and his appetite was bound to become a normal again in the next few days. But it did not. As far as Mr. Austin could measure it, Ned was eating less and less. It was obvious that he was thinner. He was also growing much paler, except for a red flush on the cheekbones. Mr. Austin became alarmed, but Ned obstinately refused any help, always asserting with emphasis that he had no ailment of any kind. But the man could see that he had become much lighter, and he wondered at the boy's physical failure. Dizavala, also, expressed his sorrow in sonorous Spanish, but Ned, while thanking them, steadily disclaimed any need of sympathy. The boy found the days hard, but the nights were harder. For the first time in his life he could not sleep well. He would lie for hours so wide awake that his eyes grew used to the dark, and he could see everything in his room. He was troubled, too, by bad dreams, and in many of these dreams he was a living skeleton, wandering about and condemned to live forever without food. 
More than once he bitterly regretted the resolution he had taken, but having taken it, he would never alter it. His silent, concentrated nature would not let him. Yet he endured undoubted torture day by day. Torture was the only name for it. I shall send an application to President Santa Anna to have you allowed a measure of liberty, said Mr. Austin finally. You are simply pining away here, Edward, my lad. You cannot eat, that is, you eat only a little. I have passed the most tempting and delicate things to you, and you always refuse. No boy of your age would do so, unless something were very much wrong with his physical system. You have lost many pounds, and if this keeps on, I do not know what will happen to you. I shall not ask for our liberty for you, but you must have a doctor at once. I do not want any doctor, Uncle Steve, said the boy. He cannot do me any good, but there is somebody else whom I want. Who is he? A barber. A barber? Now what good can a barber do you? A great deal. What I crave most in the world is a haircut, and only a barber can do that for me. My hair has been growing for more than three months, Uncle Steve, and you've seen how extremely thick it is. Now it is so long, too, that it's falling all about my eyes. Its weight is oppressing my brain. I feel a little touch of fever now and then, and I believe it is this awful hair. He ran his fingers through the heavy locks until his head seemed to be surrounded with the defense like the quills of a porcupine. Beneath the great bush of hair, his gray eyes glowed in a pale, thin face. There is a lot of it, said Mr. Austin, surveying him critically, but it is not usual for anybody in our situation to be worrying about the length and abundance of his hair. I'm sure I'd be a lot better if I could get it cut close. Well, well, if you're taking it so much to heart, we'll see what can be done. You are ill and wasted, Edward, and when one is in that condition, a little thing can affect his spirits. Dizavala is a friendly sort of young fellow, and through him we will send a request to Colonel Sandoval, the commander of the prisons, that you be allowed to have your hair cut. If you please, Uncle Steve, said Nate gratefully. Mr. Austin was not wrong in his forecast about Lieutenant Dizavala. He showed a full measure of sympathy, hence a petition to Colonel Martin Santvalia Dominguez, commander of prisons in the city of Mexico, was drawn up in due form. It stated that one Edward Fulton, a Texan of tender years, now in detention at the capital, was suffering from the excessive growth of hair upon his head. The weight and thickness of said hair had heated his brain and destroyed his appetite. In ordinary cases of physical decline, a physician was needed most, but so far as young Edward Fulton was concerned, a barber could render the greatest service. He had been descending, it seemed to him, fully an hour, and he must have come down a mile when he heard the rattle of a saber. It was so distinct and so near that it could not be imagination. He looked in the direction of the sound and saw two dark figures in the street. As he stared, the two figures shaped themselves into two Mexican officers. Truth, not fancy, told him that they were not moving. They had seen him escaping, and they would come for him. He pressed his body hard against the stone wall, and with his hands resting upon one of the knots, clung desperately to the rope. He was hanging in an alley, in the street at the mouth of it, six or seven yards away. They were talking, and it must be about him. He saw them create a light in some manner, and his hands almost slipped from the rope. Then joy flooded back. They were merely lighting cigarettes, and with a few more words to each other, they walked on. Ned slid slowly down, but when he came to the last knot, his strength gave way and he fell. It seemed to him that he was plunging an immeasurable distance through depths of space. Then he struck, and with the force of the blow, consciousness left him. When he revived, he found himself lying upon a rough stone pavement, and it was still dark. He saw above a narrow cleft of somber sky, and something cold and trailing lay across his face. He shivered with repulsion, snatched at it to throw it off, and found that it was his rope. Then he felt himself cautiously and fearfully, but found that no bones were broken, nor was he bruised to any degree, and now he knew that he could not have fallen more than two or three feet. Perhaps he had struck first upon the little pack which had fastened upon his back. 
It reminded him that he was shoeless and coatless, and undoing the pack, he reclothed himself fully. He's quite sure that he had not lain there more than a quarter of an hour. Nothing had happened while he was unconscious. It was a dark little alley in the rear of the prison, and the buildings on the other side that abutted it were windowless. He walked cautiously to the mouth of the alley and looked up and down the street. He saw no one, and pulling his cap down over his eyes, he started instinctively towards the north, because it was to the far north that he wished to go. He was fully aware that he faced great dangers, almost impossibilities. Practically nothing was in his favor, save that he spoke excellent Spanish and also Mexican versions of it. He went for several hundred yards along the rough and narrow street, and he began to shiver again. Now it was from cold, which often grows intense at night in the great valley of Mexico. Nor was it his wasted frame fitted to withstand it. He was assailed also by a fierce hunger. He had carried self-denial to the utmost limit, and nature was crying out against him in a voice that must be heard. He resolved to risk all and obtain food. Another hundred yards, and he saw crouched in an angle of the street an old woman who offered tortillas and frijoles for sale. He went a little nearer, but apprehension almost overcame him. It might be difficult for him to pass for a Mexican, and she would give the alarm. But he went yet nearer and stood where he could see her face. It was broad, fat, and dark, more Aztec than Spaniard, and then he approached boldly, his speed increased by the appetizing aroma arising from some flat cakes that lay over burning charcoal. I will take these, my mother, he said in Mexican, and leaning over, he snatched up half a dozen gloriously hot tortillas and frijoles. A cry of indignation and anger was checked at the old woman's lips as the two small silver coins slipped from the boy's hand and tinkled pleasantly together in her own. Holding his spoils in his hands, Ned walked swiftly up the street. He glanced back once and saw that the old Aztec woman had sunk back into her original position. He had nothing to fear from any alarm by her, and he looked ahead for some especially dark nook in which he could devour the precious food. He saw none, and he caught a glimpse beyond a foliage, and recalled enough of the city of Mexico to know what it was. It was the Zocalo, or Garden of the Cathedral, the Holy Metropolitan Church of Mexico. Above the foliage he could see the dark walls, and above them he saw the dome, as he had seen it from the window of his prison. Over the dome itself rose a beautiful lantern, in which a light was now burning. Ned entered the garden, which contained many trees, and sat down in the thickest group of them. He began to eat. He was ravenous as any wolf, but he had been cultivating the power of will, and he ate like a gentleman, knowing that to do otherwise would not be good for him. But, tempered by discretion, it was a glorious pursuit. It was almost worth a long period of fasting and suffering for common Mexican food, bought on the street from an old Aztec woman to taste so well. Strength flowed back into every vein and muscle. He would not give way to fears and tremblings which were of the body rather than of the mind. He stopped when half of the food was gone, put the remainder in his pocket, and stood up. Fine drops of water struck him in the face. It had begun to rain, and a raw wind was moaning in the valley. Despite the warm food and the returning strength, Ned felt the desperate need of shelter. It was growing colder, too. Even as he stood there, the fine rain turned into fine snow. It melted as it fell but when it struck him about the neck and face it had an uncommonly penetrating power, and the chill seemed to go to the bone. He must have shelter. He looked at the dark walls of the cathedral, and then at the light in the slender lantern far above the dome. What more truly a shelter than a church? It had been sanctuary in the dark ages, and he must use it now as such. He left the trees and stood for a little while by a stone, one of the 124 which formerly enclosed an atrium. Still seeing nothing and hearing nothing but the whistle of the wind which drove the cold drops of snow under his collar, he advanced boldly again, sprang over the iron railing, and came to the walls of the old church where he stood a moment. 
Ned knew that in great Catholic cathedrals, like the one of Mexico, there were always side doors or little wickets used by priests or other high officials of the church, and he was hoping to find one that he could open. He passed halfway around the building, feeling cautiously along the cold stone. Once he saw a watchman with a sombrero, heavy cloak, and lantern, he pressed into a niche, and the watchman went on his automatic way, little thinking that anyone was near. The boy continued his circuit, and presently he found a wooden door, which he could not force. A little further he came to a second, which opened into his pressure. It was so small an entrance that he stooped as he passed in. He shut it carefully behind him, and stood in what was almost total darkness, until his eyes grew used to the gloom. Then he saw that he was in a vast interior, Doric in architecture, severe and simple. It was in the form of a Latin cross, with fluted columns dividing the aisles from the nave. Above him rose a noble dome. He could make out nothing more for the present. It was very still, very imposing, and at another time he would have been awed. But now he had found sanctuary. The cold and the snow were shut out, and a grateful warmth took their place. He walked down one of the aisles, careful that his footsteps should make no sound. He saw that there were rows of chapels, seven on either side of the church. It occurred to him that he would be safer in one of these rooms, and he chose that which seemed to be used least. While on this search, he passed the main altar in the center of the building. He noticed above the stalls a picture of the Virgin. He was a Protestant, but when he saw it, he crossed himself devoutly. Was not her church giving him shelter and refuge from his enemies? He also passed the altar of the kings, beneath which now lies the heads of the great Mexicans who secured the independence of their country from Spain. He looked a little at these before he entered the chapel of his choice. It was a small room, lighted scarcely at all by a narrow window, and it contained a few straight wooden pews, one of which had been turned about, facing the wall. He lay down in his pew, and even in daylight he would have been hidden from anyone a yard away. The hard wood was soft to him. He put his cap under his head and stretched himself out. Then, without will, he relaxed completely. Nature could stand no more. His eyes closed, and he floated off into the far and happy region of sleep. End of chapter 2 Reading by Mr. Duck <laughs>